Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Megan Wildhood, a host on the New Books and Poetry, a part of the New Books Network. I'm so excited to welcome Elizabeth Hoover to the show. Uh, Elizabeth Hoover is the author of The Archive is All in the Present Tense, winner of the 2021 Barrow Street Book Prize. We'll be talking about that book today. Uh, Her creative nonfiction has appeared in the North American Review, the Kenyon Review, and Story Quarterly. She teaches in the English department at Webster University in St. Louis. Thank you so much for joining me today, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this book, um, not least because I am uh, studying to become a librarian and uh, loved all all the things, the my gosh, the structure of the book, all of the things that were included in the book, I I love it. I love it so much. It's been a long time since I've seen those little cards. <laughs> like, like <Yes. laughs> um, so I want to just start by um, this is a this is a poetry collection. Is this your first poetry collection? It is. Yeah, it's my I'm, debut. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, I'm so glad to be talking about this with you. Um, I'd love to hear more about the just kind of the inspiration of the collection and kind of the time frame of the poems, like how how they were written, how like how long they were written. Was it that you knew you were writing a collection or did it kind of sneak up on you? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting when I think about where this book started, I always think, oh, it was because of that. And then I realized like 10 years earlier, it was because of that. And then, so I think, um, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, Pittsburgh is really proud of being the hometown of Carnegie, who started the Carnegie Library System. And so we have the main Carnegie branch um, is like um, this marble palace. And when I was growing up, it's no longer like this, but when I was growing up, it was connected by a long hallway to the Carnegie Museum, um, which is actually a collection of four museums, the Art Museum, the Museum of Natural History, um, Design, and um, one other that I'm forgetting. But um, so it was this huge space of exploration for me And I didn't have a sense until I was much older that these things were meant to be separate, that um, like art was meant to be separate from dioramas of taxidermied animals or that, you know, the gemstone collection was not a part of the sculpture collection. Um, And so I think, you know, we were sort of, let to be run wild in these big spaces um, where knowledge was, depending on what room you were in, knowledge was going to be dispensed in a different way, right? Was it going to be like on a card next to a display? Was it going to be in a book? Was it going to be in a gallery guide? Um, And then moving forward, when I was an undergraduate, I had the opportunity to study with Michael Harper. Um, and, uh, the, I was at Brown university and their archive and special collection is the John Hay library. And Michael Harper is obsessed with, was obsessed with Abraham Lincoln and John Hay was Abraham Lincoln's secretary. So (laughs) he was obsessed with the archive. He would take us to the archives. Um, And, um, you know, so you think about these poetry workshops as people write poems and then sit around a table. You know, my first experience with a poetry workshop was like being quizzed on uh, American history, being taken to an archive, listening to someone lecture. Um, there wasn't a lot of that sort of feedback stuff. So I think like 
archival research, American history, or history in general, um, and poetry always felt really um, intermixed for me. Um, and the second part of your question, um, I wrote it really fast. I um, I was in a class, this was when I was at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, uh, taught by Brenda Cardenas, and um, it was a class on the poetic series, and I don't know, I just wrote them. I started, I think, I think the whole book took me maybe six months, um, you know, to write, <laughs> and I just wrote it in order. Um, and I just wrote it in the order as it appears now. Um, and it was never really like workshopped. I just sort of wrote it and sent it out. Um, so the whole process was really quick. Um, and you did say, is this your first book? It's my first published book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking now, what did I learn from that? You know, these, these three or four books I wrote painstakingly and, you know, tremblingly got as much feedback as possible from as many people as possible. I'm wondering, you know, what I learned from uh, doing a process totally different, differently now. Yeah. That is fascinating because it didn't, I mean, when I, I read it, I, I, I read it twice. First time I read it just very quickly straight through seemingly kind of like how you wrote it and um that was that was one experience and then I kind of went through kind of like one goes through those those little drawers of cards in an old library um and that was a totally different experience and I can kind of see those mirroring um the writing it not really workshopping it sending it out and then the workshopping this every single poem three or four times, changing the order, making sure everything like that was my experience with my first book. Um, and cause I just didn't know you could just send something out without someone else having read it and made it like gave, give, giving you permission. To send yeah. <laughs> um, that, that is so interesting. The, uh, what you talked about with the, the Carnegie library system and, how it is reflected in your book, not knowing that the various categories are supposed to be separate. Um, they just kind of were all together for you. It seems like that's reflected in the in the book. There's this weaving of all kinds of, I mean, a, a library contains all kinds of information, but it's usually categorized. I just, I love that. So um, I'd love to talk about the structure of the book. There's so many pieces involved in this. Um, I mentioned earlier the the cards. People who are um, younger might not know what I'm talking about when I talk about the cards because um, everything is digital now. But um, when I was younger, I'm not even that old, but when I was younger, we would go to, we had to learn the Dewey Decimal System and le- that's how you would find information. You'd find books in, even in our school libraries. And those cards appear in the book. And I'm like, I haven't seen one of these cards for 25 years. I love it. Um, I know that there are libraries that still use them and it's, uh, they're, they're like artifacts now. I love them. Um, so when you were writing this, did the structure kind of come to you as you were writing and, uh, as you were writing it straight through, or did you have, um, intentional considerations about what to include in what form and kind of, you said you wrote it in the order, which um, is amazing. <laughs> Not spending any time on reordering, but I mean, that's just, um, I guess if you write something straight through, that is somewhat easier to do. But yeah, talk to me about the structure of this um, and the form of each of these uh, pieces. Yeah, so I um, I think the there are this series of poems that are that imitate the old card cataloging. Um, and those I did fuss around with in terms of the order. Um, I think what happened, <laughs> what happened was I, so the, the, the titled poems all tell a story. Um, and 
then at a certain point, the researcher um, uh, meets an archivist who has a recording device in their throat. And um, that sort of suggested to me this idea of an archive of sound recordings. Um, I've also done some archival work uh, research that involved accessing sound recordings. Um, and in in one of that, I so I wanted to write a biography of the poet Robert Hayden at one point in my life <laughs> when I thought I had a more um, sort of forward moving brain instead of a web like brain. But um, I really wanted to see this video recording of him uh, walking, giving a tour of Paradise Valley in Detroit, which is where he grew up. Um, and I went, I was at the University of Michigan uh, archive and they had the recording on a VH tape, but they wouldn't let me play it um, because the tape um, could degrade. Um, and I was just thinking about um, what could have been on that tape, you know? Um, and I think like, um, speaking of web-like brains, I feel like I'm not answering your question. I'm just jumping all over the place. Um, you're asking about the structure, but I think, um, one thing I am very interested in when it comes to archives is material culture, that the touching, um, of objects, the, um, why not just um, read the collected letters of a poet? Why go to the archive and handle um, his papers, right? In the case of Robert Hayden. Um, when I was handling Robert Hayden's letters, uh, which are in the Baha'i Temple in uh, Wilmette, Illinois, um, the whole room smelled of pipe smoke because he was a pipe smoker and it it saturated the paper. And I don't know what that taught me in terms of um, knowledge that I can articulate in words, but I felt like it contributed a type of knowledge to the project. Um, yeah, so anyways, I was really frustrated I couldn't hear this sound recording. Um, and so uh, I, that's where this archive of possible utterances came, like this archive of possible recordings that were never made. And um, and also at the same time, um, the library, the same time I was writing the book rather, the library at UWM um, was like throwing out all their cards um, from their old card catalog. And I somehow got my hands on a box of them. So I had this box of like thousands of cards. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, they tell stories, um, you know, it's like that game you play where you give someone seven words and then they have to tell a story, you know, it's like this very elliptical, very distilled, um, but also very complex in terms of how it points to relationships between things like see also a narrow term is something different. So um, it has like its own grammar. Um, I think also in terms of structure, and this is just like a tip or a trick. It's like, you know, I never have writer's block because while I was writing this, because if I didn't know what to do, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm making cards. Maybe I'll get out a card and, you know, it gave me like a task to do. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. I love that. All of that. <laughs> Forward <laughs> thinking rather than web-like. I relate to that so much. Um, <laughs> it's like, yes, that, that actually explains a whole lot of why I have un piles of unfinished tasks just everywhere. <laughs> And the thing about writer's block is amazing too. I think, um, I yeah, that's, I, that's one of the tips I got um, a while ago too. Is always have a different project going on because if you get stuck on one, you can switch to another, and you have different projects going on in this one book, um, which I thought was brilliant. Um, there is something that you said that sparked. I actually had two questions related to uh, written down here. It's about the relationship between the archivist and knowledge. Um, 
And so one of them is there's this poem called What the Archive Hides in Its Benthic Dark. And it made me think, maybe consider like what's important to remember. Um, you know, like throwing out these cards, some people would be fine with that. Some people would be horrified by that. I am an emotional pack rat, so I'd be horrified by that. Um, and like, because I keep every receipt, every card, every handwritten note, like literally I have notes from the, this is, people ask what you did before the internet in class, you'd write notes to your friends. You'd fold them up in fun little origami ways and shove them in the locker slats between class during passing periods. I saved those from like 1997. Um, so I saved stuff like that. And it's like my own little archive, but I, it's very interesting. I, I'd love your thoughts on like, how do we decide what to archive? Cause it's a little different than how we decide what to remember. Cause I didn't remember I'd saved those. I had to have decided in the moment to save those and didn't, remember when I was going through all my stuff didn't remember I had this giant envelope of handwritten notes from my friends from the 90s <laughs> which we would just send in text messages now but I'd love to hear yeah how do we decide what to archive and how do we decide what to remember or do do we decide what to remember yeah I think that's um a, a really big question um and I think one of the things that I was struggling with, um, what I've struggled with throughout um, my career. So I'm an academic. Um, I'm a queer academic. I love academic work. Um, and But I also acknowledge that a lot of the governing principles behind um, academies are violent um and they don't just render certain people unincluded but certain people unincludable um and in fact archives um are often places we think of them as places of preservation but they can be places of erasure um so on one hand i'm thinking about uh how uh, the Library of Congress used to catalog anything related to LGBTQ plus people. It was in the 320s, which was um, abnormal sexual relations. So you would find books on, um, you'd find lesbian romance novels next to um, books on rape and pedophilia. Um, and then I'm also thinking about the ways that so many people who were important historically, um, when they died, their archives were culled through um, and evidence of their queer lives um, erased um, or destroyed. Um, and then, um, so this idea of what do we choose to archive um, you know, the counterexample is the les lesbian history archive in Brooklyn, um, which has a collecting policy that it will collect anything that a lesbian has touched um, or a queer woman has touched. They say that any woman who has the courage to uh, love another woman is a hero and should be archived, right? So um, you have a lot of stuff that would be considered sort of unimportant, um, you know, pulp novels, uh, you know, your letter, I mean, you know, things like that, things that have no quote unquote historical import, right? Um, and so I think like um, what we choose to archive is different from what we choose to remember, but in, there's an overlap, right? Because you you can't remember any everything. So you've got to go back to the archive and remind yourself, right? That, that um, I love that, uh, prefix re to return to remember to recall uh um so the act of remembering in an archive um involves returning to material that has been looked at before um but looking at it um again in a present moment wow i love that i love that there there exists a collection of things that would on the surface just seem unimportant and it's like the thing itself might not be important but it's what that thing represents or the interaction that that thing has had 
um, that makes it important. Uh, I love that. So anything that uh, a queer woman has touched is, it's not the thing that's important. It's the interaction with the the population that we have said, yes, this, we are, we're going to not fully reverse, but we're going to do an act, a counteract of what history has done and do, and, and in making that decision, we make those unimportant things important. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also maybe signify differently. So they have a very extensive collection of lesbian pulp novels from the forties and fifties, which was a time where in order to get around censorship laws, they had to have an unhappy ending, right? Because you couldn't print anything that was seen as promoting um, homosexuality, right? So, you know, it's, if, you, if you've ever seen a good example of this would be something like uh, the children's hour, right? Where um, Audrey Hepburn ends up single and Shirley MacLaine ends up dying by suicide, right? Um, but so so you can look at these lesbian pulp novels and see this evidence of censorship, of repression, of the insistence on queer death, on the insistence that a lesbian life is life is always a dead end. Um, or you could read them as evidence of queer women's agency of picking up this book and saying, I'm going to read this and identify with this character and forget the ending, ignore the ending. Right. I'm going to hold this book in public so I'm visible. Um, I'm going to pass it along to create network and connections. So it's not just that their import changes, but what they mean changes. Yes. And it's because of the connection, like the passing on, even seeing it in public. I that's one reason why I read physical books in public, like people walk around staring at their phones. Nobody thinks anything of it. But if you see somebody walking around with a book in their face, that gets looks. And I've noticed that. I'm like, that's weird. People are staring into their phones. They're probably reading something or whatever, watching something. Why is it that a physical book gets heads turned? But I decided to use that to my advantage. And I think that's because it's. I started conversations with people. And so that's that's what you said, making it visible. That's the the meaning of that can change based on who turns their head, who gets into a conversation, um, who who interacts with that thing. And then the network that is created by um, collecting and passing on uh, information or artifacts that otherwise wouldn't be deemed important for better or for worse. I So I, I love that. The other um, question that is in relation to all of this is, um, this is from uh, in the archive. You need a name. There, there are two poems that have that title. So I will leave readers to figure out which one this is from. Um, uh, it's a you write. I don't know that name, so I start with the top left drawer of the card catalog. I will page everything until I find her. This is um, talking about the interaction with a, a librarian. So this may not be what you meant, but this this line in particular made me think about how librarians are always, they're the ones, they're the ones being asked for information. They're the ones looking for the information. They're the ones, um, you know, helping people find information. Um, but how often are, are they being asked information about themselves? So... You know, like who asks for information about librarians as opposed to just information from librarians. So this kind of made me think, how is our interaction with information archives um, a way that we are both seen and kind of hidden uh, in terms of interacting with what whatever that sort of collection that you're that you're working with is? And like, what's the relationship between information and knowledge? Oh, sure. So when you say, how are we seen or unseen, are, is the we librarians or there's the we researchers or is the we everyone? Any of them, all of them, however you want to go with that question. They might be different answers, um, but I think it, it, the jumping off point for me was, oh, people ask librarians for information all the time, but yeah. they ask them about themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, 
you know, oddly enough, I think archives can be very intimate spaces. Um, you know, and I think um especially when there's like a moment of discovery. Um, and you're in the archive alone and there's like no one to share it with, <laughs> but the archivist, right? And so I think about working in archives um, where I actually have had these wonderful conversations with librarians. You know, um, I work at the, at, at the UWM um, archive, uh, the archivist have a day where they make, um, they bring in baked goods that they made from archival recipes. And I was in the archive all the time. And so often they would like share their baked goods with me and like, um, you know, I think especially like when you're working with queer collections, like I got to know that archivist really well. Um, because like some of the archival material would make him remember things from his past. So I tend to get into people's business anyways, just because I'm real nosy. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, information and knowledge. What's the relationship between information and knowledge? You know, I don't know, uh, but I do want to shout out this great essay uh, by Jose Esteban Munoz that's also about queer archiving called Ephemera as Evidence. And I think one of the um, one of the things about Western knowledge is that we um, we put up certain boundaries around what counts as information. Um, so like. I always joke that like this whole uh, arm of philosophy arose because Rene Descartes didn't trust his butt. You know, Rene Descartes was like, am I sitting on a stool? I don't know. How do I know if I'm sitting on a stool or I think I'm sitting on a stool? Um, and the idea was that the sensation coming from his body was suspect. Um, and so you had to use pure reason um because human reason is not suspect it's objective right and so it's like well why is why is your logical thinking through whether or not you're sitting on a stool uh better than or a, a better way to reach information than me being like yeah my butt's uncomfortable my butt's falling asleep because it's on a hard stool um and we see that showing up in all kinds of ways that can be really problematic right because then um if the brain is more important than the body then people are categorized based on their relationship to their body right like certain people are considered to be um closer to their body or their bodies are excessive um you know, I'm thinking of uh, racist science around um, around the time of slavery that argued that um, Black people had um, certain relationships to their body so they didn't feel pain as much and they had less access to reason, right? So all of these ideas, like there's no, there's really no such thing as pure information. Mm -hmm. I totally went off on a tangent. I don't know the answer to the question. <laughs> I love it. That's why I asked the questions. I love it. I feel like as writers, I you're you're definitely not the first person that's been like, um, what was the question? No. The whole <laughs> point was I ask a question and then you talk about whatever you want. Um that's okay. Oh, okay. I'm I hope I'm hoping that happens. Um and then um you'll spark another question for me, which talking about bodies, so um, yeah, speaking of there's racist science or super sexist science too. like all of the, you know, recommended doses are based on male bodies, as opposed to female bodies like cis male bodies. And so um, women uh, and female identifying people get injured by medicine more because um, the male body is not the same as the female body. And so all of that um, gets cataloged and passed down as you know, here's the gold standard objective information about how we prescribe this or that medication. And we just never looked at how it affects female bodies at all. Um, so there's that. Also disability, that's one of the uh, areas I'm particularly interested in. And uh, there's something in your, this, this might be my um, 
famous or my famous favorite line in this collection. It's very hard to pick one. Um, <laughs> if I had to pick one, it would be this. It's from the archive romances, the records. And you write alleges permanent disability documents swarm like fish at feeding. So that crystallized like my entire experience of trying to get accommodations and trying to prove that I'm disabled enough or whatever to, you know, be deemed worthy of certain assistance, but also trying to toe the line between that and not being, you know, too disabled to then have people question, well, can you do this thing at all? Mm -hmm. And yeah, the documents, the documents, I just like, I had this moment when I read that, uh, just a, a literal flash of a, I'm swimming in a school of the documents that I've had to provide. I'm like, this is itself its own little archive over here that I've been forced to create because people are asking and it's super invasive. And, um, I don't love having to relive the process of getting diagnosis, which is also sexist and racist in a lot of ways. Um, and so I'm interested in the incidental or the forced archives that we we have to make when we're interacting with various systems. So mm -hmm. I'd love for you to talk about that or whatever that sparks for you. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. I was wondering if I was ever going to get to reference Michel Foucault, but um, to <laughs> back up, the autonomous <laughs> section in that poem is actually from archival documents um, related to a relative of mine who fought in the Union Army um, and um, suffered pretty serious injuries. And so we have this, and then, then he died. And those, um, are letters between his wife and the veterans affair, trying to get, um, a widow's pension, um, that would be commensurate with, uh, commensurate with having a spouse who was unable to work prior to his death. So this like need to quote unquote prove again, something you know in your body, right? And I include people who are neuroatypical in this because your brain is in fact in your body. Um, so, you know, to prove you need an outside expert, right? To prove that you have a, uh, a disability, right? You, you are not yourself uh, knowledgeable enough about your own body to say, um, I am unable to manage stairs, or I get out of breath, or when I look at words, they don't make any sense to me, right? That you need a, um, you need documentation of that. Um, and it's interesting, these, you know, <laughs> when I was, the first time I did a poetry reading about this, a friend said I should explain more because archives are really inaccessible. The idea of archives are really inaccessible. But we all have archives, right? Like, our I use my Instagram as like an archive of photographs, right? Like we have medical records. Um, a lot of people have uh, juridical records from, um, they they have an archive of quote unquote wrongs against the state that prevent them from voting, getting jobs, getting housing, et cetera. So this idea of the forced archive, like the archive can be, um, and this is coming from Foucault, the archive can be an instrument of force. Um, and then um, to put people in line, and then it can be like a required, um, a requirement to um, access certain resources. This is why, and you know, don't tell anyone this, um, but uh, I don't require documentation from my students if they need an accommodation because there can be a lot of barriers, like cultural barriers, um, financial barriers in terms of what kind of health insurance you have. Um, and then some people are have had the experience of having an archive haunt them, right? Like a juvenile arrest record or um, driving infractions or, you know, those sort of things. Um, so yes, archives everywhere. Archives. <laughs> so everywhere. 
I also love that you were waiting to reference Michel Foucault. That's my favorite. Uh, I, uh, my dad is going to love this interview. Um, he jokes that he was six months away from a PhD in philosophy and then the Vietnam War ended. So um, um. that's that's why. But um, he, I think he references Michel Foucault in almost every conversation that we have. So uh he'll be he'll be very excited (laughs) he's Uh, the most cited scholar in the humanities (laughs) oh i didn't know that okay that makes sense that i think people cite him and they don't realize also that they're citing him like they talk about various ideas from from him and they have no idea that it's from him which is interesting also speaking of um we've talked there's all these ideas about um forced archives i you mentioned Instagram, the internet is kind of an archive, um, kind of an unintentional one. And it makes me think of, we've mentioned uh, here, uh, erasure. I also wonder if uh, there is, uh, there's this idea, it was in the, I don't remember what year this happened. It was somewhat recently, the Europe, uh, European Union passed a law called the GDPR, which was about privacy online. And it was basically, it was based on the idea of the right to be forgotten so you, uh, as a user of the internet, of social media companies um, and such, even just websites that collect cookies, uh, have more control over your data because uh, you have the right to be forgotten. And that's one way to look at it. Of course, um, in a lot of social justice spaces, they that the idea is the right to be seen because if there's erasure, then you don't get to choose whether you're forgotten or not. Um, but it's I'm interested in the the relationship between the the archive, just the archetypal archive, and the right to be forgotten, and how that balances with the right to be visible and not erased. <clears throat> Yeah, um, I'm going to sort of torque your question so that I can um, suggest a wonderful book called Trapdoor. Um, and one of the the only editor I can remember is uh, Raina Gossett, um, who's also a filmmaker. When she makes films, she uses uh, the name Tourmaline. Um, but it's about Um, discourses around uh, trans visibility. And it was inspired in part because 2020 in the United States was the year in which um, there were the highest number of trans characters on television played by trans actors. And it was also uh, the deadliest year um, for trans people on record. Um, And so I think in capitalism, and I see this with my queer students all the time. I teach in, um, I often teach LGBTQ plus studies classes, but this, this yearning to be part of mainstream representation, um, but this sickening disappointment because the representation is always wrong, right? Because of course, uh, mainstream pop culture is the propaganda wing of the cis heteropatriarchy. Um, And so I wonder about, like, we mentioned the archive writ large, and I just think about, like, well, what if we, we could kind of break it all up. Like, are there certain spaces in which you want to be visible and certain spaces where it would be better to be forgotten? Like, I, I, I would be perfectly content if there was never another gay person in a Disney movie. It would be totally fine with me. You know, <laughs> um, because I I would rather turn in a different direction, um, you know. So I I you know I, I feel like we're we're as LGBTQ plus people uh, we're sort of trained to be like oh yay crumbs you know and I <laughs> I don't know if that's that's the position I want to take anymore. I'm sorry I didn't talk about the right to be forgotten. I love it. I, this is amazing. I feel like, and and yeah, the thing that you, and questions are, are absolutely for torquing. So no worries on that. (laughs) Um, I think what, but you, you did address kind of what I said about, uh, right to be forgotten because on some level, it's like, I would love to choose not just compulsory 
um, celebration of representation, however horrible it might be, versus I would like to choose whether I'm seen or forgotten based on my based on how how well how good the representation is how uh, how much i identify with it how much of a say i have in it um because yeah representation can be can be harmful just as much as erasure can be if it's caricatured or uh embellished or just wrong um and the thing you said about crumbs too is like um yeah just because you throw a gay person into a movie doesn't mean that you've like fixed the representation problem like at all and that's a problem with there being like oh well you know look we have all of these now we have a record of trans activists playing trans characters or trans actors playing trans characters so check we fixed the problem of representation because now we have this record which isn't so there can be a way in which the the archive of representation can itself be erasure as well because it's not if it's not real or it's not um it's not correct seems like kind of a small shallow word for what i'm trying to get at um but it made me think too of the when we talk about the the archive writ large people say there's this phrase you know oh okay just for the record and then they say this thing. What? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I say I say it, and I'm like, what record? Like, for the record, I mean, I've said that. I everybody says that. We want it to be recorded, but where? Where is it recorded? Who's recording it? What is this? What is this record? What's what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is making me think of I another shout out I want to make. You know, I think problematic archives um can also be sites of play so if you look at something like Cheryl Dunier's The Watermelon Woman or even Jenny Olson who is a um a film historian um she has this thing called uh she has a series um but her she has has a feature called Homo Promo where she uh just splices together um trailers from uh, movies over a, like a huge time span with uh, that represented gay people. So you can see uh, how the nature of these problematic representations change, which is very interesting. Um, but I also think like sometimes when, you know, I just don't think it's going to save us. I just don't think like if we're cute enough on TV that that's going to save us. You know, there's a, the um, trans youth of color are egregiously overrepresented in homeless populations. And as much as I love Pose and cry every episode, I don't, I don't think it's getting kids off the street. Um, Yeah. And to pretend it kind of performs this double erasure. So it erases the fact that there was erasure. Um, yeah yes yes totally like how we like how we say oh well you know we we accomplished this thing of um we had a we had a black president therefore racism is solved (laughs) and it and that in and of itself first of all is not true and it also then kind of oh we can move on from the hundreds of years of history of erasure too um so it it in a lot of ways it seems like um representation versus erasure versus the right to choose whether you're represented or forgotten some people probably would prefer to not have a record of themselves that was the idea behind the GDPR um and which which is fine for people who choose that um but it seems like that relationship that relationship depends on the relationship between the archive and the archivist. Mm-hmm. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Can I tell you a story? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but then and it does it does reference uh it there's sexual violence in it. But so when I was younger, I was very much enthralled to the patriarchy. 
um, you know, knowledge for me was reading all of Shakespeare, uh, all of Hemingway. Um, it was the male names carved in marble on the outside of the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh. And I was in my MFA program. I went, I wanted to write uh, long poems in the voice of historical figures like Ulysses S. Grant. Mm -hmm. And there was a poet who had written a book in the voice of Daniel Boone. And so I went to study with him and there were lots of um, handsome, white, uh, Southern men in the class with me where we were studying Wordsworth. Um, we were writing in Demeter. And if we wrote well enough in Demeter, we could write in Trimeter. And if we wrote well enough in Trimeter, we could write in Tetrameter. Um, and there would be this coffee break and the poet and all his boys would be in this clump and I would just be behind them, kind of like nipping at their heels. Um, and at the time I was volunteering for the Pride Film Festival and I had an extra ticket to the opening gala. And so I invited one of these guys. Uh, he was a, he didn't get to go out a lot cause he was a single dad. So I offered him a ticket and he got really drunk and he had me pinned up against the wall by my neck. And he was forcing me to, he was kissing me forcibly. And he said, Elizabeth, I want you to know I will never love you. Um, and luckily the other people, you know, came to my aid and I was able to get free. Um, and the next week, you know, I mean, I woke up covered in bruises, but the next week at seminar, they were all going for coffee and I was nipping at their heels. And I just thought, Elizabeth, they will never love me. Um, you know, and I, I think it was Audrey Lord who said, if the table's not set with love, leave, get up and leave. Um, and I, I turned away from that moment. And, you know, do I want to be included in a system that I fundamentally object to? Um, or can I turn away and um, and move move into love? You know, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, that guy's novel just came out. Oh. Uh, <sighs> yeah. And my initial, this is also, I realized this was part of the patriarchy too, is my initial response when I hear stories of sexual violence like that is to be like, I'm so sorry that happened. And I'm like, I as a woman should not apologize for a man's behavior. So what I'm going to do is say thank you for including that this is a record this is recorded this is going to be online this is now a record of that story and so it should be included in the archive of you know whatever poetry podcasts archive survives um but it's important that that be that there's space for that um and that it's also on record that uh the what what we can do as people who have experienced that kind of violence or people who I like enthralled by the patriarchy that that is a really good term because you're just that's the education system isn't it and you're not told it's patriarchy you're not told it's oppressive so there's erasure there where it's just like oh these are just the good these are the writers you don't go male writer Hemingway you just say writer Hemingway but if it's a woman female writer black writer queer writer there has to be that qualifier. And so saying, oh, I'm so sorry that happened is like, well, I'm not the one who should be apologizing, but I'm happy to make space, not happy that it happened at all, but happy to make space for naming those types of things. And for saying like this, it's very true. Why would we want to be included in a system that, is violent towards us. However, it's like as a woman, the system is violent towards me. Um, as someone with a disability, violence towards me. Why would I want to be included in that? So, and not not be included and the right to be forgotten are different things. But um, there is this. I think it fundamentally comes down to choice. It fundamentally comes down to choice. You know, having. Like, should I be satisfied with the representation in the media or not? I should get to choose. Should I 
be, should I have my whole life lived online, which I'm of the generation where that I had, I had the option. Facebook didn't come out till I graduated from high school. Um, praise the good Lord for that. Anyways, uh, I maybe find me on MySpace. I love MySpace so much. Um, that is a very interesting archive. Wow. Uh, the first attempt at Facebook. Oh, um, uh, so, and for those who are wondering, that is my cat. Yes. Yes. Um, she would like to be included. She would like to not be forgotten ever. Uh, Mm -hmm. and is, she could starve to death. Yes. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) No one ever loves her or feeds her. So (laughs) speaking of not being forgotten. Um, so, uh, (laughs) there are so many, I, SB, um, I could talk to you for a long time, as I mentioned before the recording. Um, so you will have to let me know when your next book comes out, because I would love to have you back on the show. Two, three, three final questions. Okay. And remaining time. Um, first, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have? Well, you mentioned my um, my next book um was one of the questions going to be what am I working on now yes <laughs> that was, was going to be tied with the next question of where can people find you and yeah. keep up with your work and what's gonna what's coming out next so okay all of that your next book where can people find you I will also put these uh in the show notes like if you have you want people uh direct people to Instagram Twitter you have a website all of that and yes what are your upcoming what are your upcoming projects yeah, well, I, uh, I've i been working on um, a book-length poem. So I have a ma- finished manuscript that's called The Cutting Room, and it actually, which is a slang term for a film editing studio, and it actually is related to this idea of representation. Um, uh, I don't really, I don't watch any films directed by straight white men anymore. Um, I just don't think it's good for my like health. Um, so the cutting room has a tribute poem to Agnes Varda, um, in the center, a long poem. And it's about, uh, film. It's about like sort of turning away from what is considered great film and into, um, the, the art that I really love. So, but the thing I'm working on right now, I don't know if it's gonna be anything. Like that's kind of where I'm at, but I wanted to bring it up because a lot of people don't know the photographer I'm writing about and um, their name was Claude Cahoon. They were a French photographer. They're often categorized as a surrealist. Um, They're AFAB, assigned female at birth. Um, uh, Lucy, Lucy Schwab was their name when they were born. Um, but they were active in the surrealist movement, but they had to leave because the surrealist, the only thing the surrealists hate more than women are queers. Um, and so, uh, they went, uh, to an island with their, uh, life partner and collaborator, uh, who took the name Marcel Moore. Um, and their photography is amazing. And I really encourage people to check it out. It's uh, Claude Cahoon. Yeah. So that's what I'm working on now. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> I love all of these references. I mean, it's like your brain is like an archive of stuff that people, I would say in general, are not familiar with for all of the reasons, <laughs> the systems of oppression for all the things that we don't, um, we are just taught in the system are not important or we don't even know they exist. I was not told anything, you know, like that I'm like, Oh, when did I hear about uh, even when did I even hear about surrealism at all? And that I didn't really know until I came across like Salvador Dali's clocks or something. And was like, what is even happening in this picture? What's going on? And it was just like, Oh, Salvador Dali is like a, major misogynist huh (laughs) I was just told he's a great artist why wasn't I also told he hates uh me basically people 
women. <laughs> why, why is, why is that something I wasn't told? Interesting. Yeah. And, and when it comes up, it, we're always taught that it's supposed to be like a footnote. So it's like separate the artist from the art, but it's not, you know, like it appears. Um, I hate to bring up Woody Allen, but you know, his movies feature very young women in relationships with very old men. So men, so his, his art is the, the problematic nature of it. It's like the United States, right? Like you have letters from Thomas Jefferson where he's like debating the federal system. And then all of a sudden he like breaks off and talks about how Phyllis Wheatley will never be a great poet because she's um, a black woman. Um, an enslaved woman, right? So that is, it's not that like racism was this um, tumor that could have been excised from the system or that sexism was a tumor that could have been excised or um, or bandaged by amendments to the constitution. It's that it is constitutive to the system. Uh, I'm sorry, where can you find me? <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, it made me think of like um another recent-ish uh debate David Foster Wallace who everybody you know people are like whoa he's a he's a great writer but then it was also like well he treated women horribly and when you read some of his work I mean I know he died a long time ago but it's like uh, I heard that separate the art from the artist and it's like but then you just have a bunch of books that have holes in them like then it's not it's a diff if, if you have to cut out the parts of um the body of david foster wallace's work that are which you know is a lot uh infinite jest is could be used as a doorstop um if you have to cut out the parts if you're trying to literally separate the sexism and misogyny from the art then you, you have a different book you just have different it's you've changed it's not the thing anymore so it's as you said you cannot you don't separate them you can't um and it's like I wonder why why do people want that why are we advocating for that yeah why deserve that yeah and just to like give a shout out to your podcast like I think this question about whether or not we should do that would be incredibly important and extraordinarily urgent if there was a dearth of great writing right like, uh, I'm not particularly familiar with his work, but if there were t 12 great books and I had to figure out how to read it while ignoring the misogyny in it, well, I don't have to do that, you know? I can just read, you know, Lilith Brood by Octavia Butler, and which could also be used as a doorstop, and it's fine. Yes, I love it. That's <laughs> you know? amazing. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. If there was a dearth of great writing, this question would be relevant. Yeah. But it isn't. But you just don't have to, you know, you can just read great. I have so, I'm just looking at my bookshelf. I have so many great books. Yeah. And you don't but have I've to chop them up to preserve the the art from the sexism or whatever. I don't have to apologize if I read them in public. Yeah. <laughs> great way to pick up that needs to be a shirt. This is something <laughs> you don't have to apologize. Read books, you don't have to apologize for reading in public. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, so the final questions I have are, where can people find you? Where can they uh, keep up with your work? And then if you would end by reading a poem uh, from your collection, uh, The Archive is in the Present Tense. And uh, I would love for you to read the first in the archive, you need a name. But first, tell us where people can find you. Uh, where they can keep up with your work, where they can get uh, the archives in the present tense. Yeah, so um, I am on Facebook still, um, just with my name, Elizabeth Hoover. I have a website uh, that's terrible. I don't have a lot of technological acumen, but it's uh, E Hoover Inc. I N K. Like, uh, I thought I was so clever, however many years ago when I came up with that. Um, and there's a link to buy my book there but um it's uh it's available through barrow street that's the publisher and um it's distributed through ingram and small press distributor so you should be able to get it really at any bookstore yeah 
hopefully an independent one. Uh, it's more expensive on Amazon than in a regular bookstore. So just go to your neighborhood bookstore. Excellent. <laughs> Do that. Yeah. Or a uh, bookshop, which is the competitor to Amazon too, mm-hmm. um, which I love to support. So, but yes, uh, indie bookstores for sure. Um Great. And I will include all of the links there uh, in the show notes for uh, you listeners there to go get um, the archive is in the present tense and uh, to keep up with Elizabeth's work. So um, to close for now, this will be a semicolon, hopefully in our (laughs) conversation. um, Would you read in the archive? You need a name. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I was just looking at it and seeing if you need any background info. Um, I'll just let you know, this references the Greek man um, that the nuns said invented history, and that's Herodotus. A lot of people say Herodotus was the first historian. Um, So this is called, in the archive, you need a name. Oh, and also, sorry, before I, and it also references the fact that um, immigrants' names were anglicized or Americanized during the immigration process. Um, In the archive, you need a name. The clerk sawed off syllables, tossed consonants, stitched in vowels, made a chimera that licked its bloody chops on every page of my grandfather's military records. He changed it after the war, named himself after the Greek man, the nun said, invented history. Nothing cataloged under that but silence. His silences come in foam-lined boxes too heavy to lift. They are ruckled and veined, stippled and scaled. Some have spines and beveled edges, some scarred where the tool slip. I take off my gloves, press my bare hands to the slab, and a librarian rushes over, tisking like a kettle. In my car, I press my palms against my face, breathe in oil, wrenches, gaskets, and valves, breathe in coffee tins punched with holes for re-oiling nuts and screws, breathe in arithmetic scrawled on cardboard. My grandfather's silences aren't silence. I'm sorry, breathe in arithmetic scrawled on cardboard. My grandfather's silences aren't silent. They are shuffles and coughs, scrape of metal, rattle of cans. They are tapping his fingers as he studies charts of torque values and tolerances. His silences are, let's see here and leave that girl alone. And my silences are their counterweight, their ballast block and tackle. If I paged my own name, the librarian would bring boxes of feathers inscribed on their spines, ask while he is still alive. Yes. (laughs) Third time that I've, uh, I mean, I've read it twice and now listened to it. And that just the thoughts about the silences and what kind of silences. Yeah. Every it's different every time. It's like fresh every time I um that was the reason I asked you to read it I love those lines so much thank you so much thank you I feel very shy now (laughs) I I yeah I try not to fangirl too much because I don't want to make people uncomfortable um but uh just as somebody who's like becoming a librarian for the reasons that we talked about like being very careful about erasure and censorship and what gets preserved and what doesn't is like librarians have a lot of power. Archivists have a lot of power in ways I don't think that we've fully recognized. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a way to uh, erase or include or represent entire populations of people. Um, and I think this this book is um, is a it talks about all of those things in so many ways. So, uh, yes, listeners, I uh, encourage you to get a copy of the archive is in the present tense. Um, by Elizabeth Hoover. And I am excited to have you back when your next book comes out. Please let me know when that is. Um, and yeah, I'll see you in 400 years. <laughs> yeah, I, I relate. <laughs> My next book, what? <laughs> um, but maybe this one will, the next one will go as this one did, uh, which was only six months that's I mean that is that's incredible and that it wasn't uh really workshopped is just like these are these poems are they um 
I think the meaning can be created by the poem, but also between the poem and the reader. And um, there is uh, a lot in here that I had jumping off points to various other things, which, as we talked about, the network, the web, the um, and this just is a is a wonderful addition to the record, so to speak. <laughs> so thank you so so much for joining me, uh, Elizabeth, and uh, truly, I am excited to speak to you again. Thank you so much, Megan. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in um, to this episode on uh, the new books in poetry. And we will see you all next time.